0: All the things that we think of as, uh, you know, worker protections just didn't exist at the beginning of the 20th century. There was no standard work week. Uh, There was no minimum wage. There were very few safety measures. Going to work uh, at the turn of the 20th century was an incredibly dangerous thing to do in America.
1: On a warm spring day in 1911, a fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York. Within minutes, it engulfed the top three stories of the factory building. 146 people died in the blaze, 123 of them young women who worked there. It was one of the worst industrial disasters in the United States. The fire and its aftermath would transform U.S. politics and shape the growing labor movement for decades. But to really understand the events of 1911, we need to go back two years and tell a much larger story than that of a single factory. In this special double episode, we'll travel to Manhattan in the early years of the 20th century. We'll look at how waves of immigrant labor shaped the city and how thousands of young women, all garment workers, became catalysts for change. They drove the fight for women's rights, fueled the rise of labor unions, demanded and got progressive changes from a government that had long ignored and exploited them. But all of this came at an enormous cost. This is Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. I'm your host, Alison Korleski. This is part one of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, The Strike. On September 10, 1909, a young woman named Clara Lemlich started down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, walking toward the Lower East Side. She had just left a picket line at Leiserson's Clothing Factory, where she worked as a draper. The women there were on strike for better working conditions and a unionized shop, and Clara, a fiery speaker, had become one of the strike's leaders. Two men watched her leave and then followed her. Clara was a small woman, barely five feet. She had a soft, round face, dark eyes, and curly, dark hair that she cut short and parted on the side. It was a style favored by many socialist women at the time, and Clara, as we'll see, was a tireless activist. She was most likely headed to a lecture, a meeting, or maybe the library where she liked to study— and she probably never noticed the men trailing her until it was too late. One got behind her to block her escape. The other started punching her, then kicking her when she fell. In a minute, two at the most, she was on her hands and knees with a bloody face and four broken ribs. Nearby, policemen watched but did nothing. Because when it came to labor strikes, this was business as usual. Manhattan, at the turn of the century, was a nexus of political activism and political corruption. Wave after wave of immigration had flooded the city with cheap labor for decades. Now workers were finally beginning to protest poor factory conditions and low pay. But Tammany Hall, the political machine that controlled New York, including its police force, usually sided with factory owners. Tammany operated on a system of favors, graft, and bribes, and business owners were happy to offer all of these to local officials. In return, if they had problems with striking workers, they got crooked cops and hired criminals whenever they needed them to keep order in their shops. But that established system was about to get a knock in the teeth itself. Because the latest wave of immigrants, they didn't want to settle for business as usual. They wanted to change everything.
0: The turn of the 20th century in New York City was a period of tremendous energy and immigration from Eastern Europe, including millions of Jews, primarily from the Russian Empire.
1: That's David Vondrely. He's a columnist for The Washington Post and the author of Triangle, The Fire That Changed America. At the turn of the 20th century, Russia was in political and economic meltdown, And as was so often the case, Jews were blamed for everything.
0: So there were uh, violent pogroms and tremendous waves of anti-Semitic violence that were causing uh, hundreds of thousands of Eastern European Jews to uh, leave their homes and cross the ocean to the United States. And most of them came through the portal of New York, and many of them stayed there. Many of them stayed in the Lower East Side of New York or started there. It became the most uh, densely populated place on Earth, uh, more so even than the cities of India and China. More people per square mile than anywhere else in the world. And they lived uh, primarily packed into 25-foot-wide tenement row houses. These were Five stories high, because that was considered as high as you could go uh, using just steps. And they didn't want to install elevators, usually four um, apartments per floor. And oftentimes you would have multiple families packed into little, uh, basically two-room apartments. It was a very hard life.
1: These cramped, windowless apartments were dingy and gray with the grime of the city. In the summer, they were stiflingly hot, and people slept on rooftops on fire escapes anywhere to get cool. In the winter, people crowded together inside, sleeping on chairs or doors they'd taken down. More than two dozen people might share a common toilet down a hall. By 1909, there were 100,000 of these tenement buildings in the city, and Clara and her family lived in one of them. Clara's family was from Ukraine and devoutly Jewish. Her father and brothers would study the Torah all day while her mother and sisters worked to support the family. Clara, though, she wanted more. She wanted an education, a chance to escape the poverty all around her. She taught herself how to sew buttonholes to earn money for books. And when her father burned the books because they were written in Russian, she bought more books and just hid them better. Galvanized by radical new ideas spreading through Russia, she became a devout communist. And when her family immigrated to the U.S. in 1903, like so many other Jewish women, she put her sewing skills to work.
0: These workers were uh, joining the garment industry in New York. The city had become the national center of clothing making.
1: By 1900, most women no longer made their clothes. It was cheaper and easier to buy them in shops or through catalogs. The fashion icon of the time was the so-called Gibson girl piled-up hair, corseted waist, and a frilly white blouse called a shirtwaist or just waist. Practically every woman wore one, rich or poor. And while their corsets may have shaped the women, their blouses helped shape the city, like architecturally shaped it.
0: And these garments were being made in loft factories. This was the sort of dawn of the era of high-rise buildings.
1: With so many people flooding into Manhattan, the city had started growing upward as much as outward, helped by the new electric elevator. Buildings ten stories and higher were going up at a rate of one or two a week throughout the city. And these new buildings housed modern new factories filled with garment workers like Clara Lemlich. And we need to clear something up here. These were not sweatshops. See, a sweatshop isn't a place where workers sweat from working so hard. Rather, it's a system of labor, an offshoot of piecework. Under the sweatshop system, a large customer, say a department store, would contract a middleman and order so many blouses for so much per blouse. The middleman would then hire workers, usually women living in those crowded tenements, and obviously he would pay less per garment than he would get paid himself. But the margins were so slim that he would also sweat out additional profits from the workers. Maybe he'd cut pay rates without warning or tell workers that that first batch of blouses they just sewed was training and they wouldn't get paid at all for those.
0: It it was brutal business and there wasn't much workers could do about it because so many new immigrants that a sweatshop owner could just hire somebody new if, uh, if somebody else walked out. Or if the workers tried to go on strike, the owner of the operation could just close down and move into a different tenement uh, two blocks away and nobody would know where he went. So a sweatshop era at the end of the 19th century was absolutely brutal.
1: The new law factories were replacing these tenement sweatshops. There were maybe 500 shirtwaist companies in Manhattan, and the triangle was the biggest. Located in Greenwich Village, just off Washington Square Park, it was sleek and modern. Big windows looked down on long rows of tables, basically assembly lines. Men used large curved knives to cut through 20 layers of fabric at a time, and the pieces then went to sewing tables, where women might sew 3,000 stitches a minute on their drive-belted machines. Button sewers worked in another spot, then embroiderers, and women who pressed and finished the garments. Then everything got folded and packed and invoiced and shipped to department stores around the country. For the workers, this factory system was definitely an improvement.
0: These new factories uh, in the high-rise buildings, they had a lot of capital sunk into them to, to build these uh, large sewing plants. They, they couldn't just shut down uh, overnight and move, and they had much larger workforces than the little sweatshop operations. So workers finally had a little bit of uh, bargaining power with the factory owners. And that's what we see happening as the uh, garment workers' unions uh, begin to form.
1: That's not to say this was a workers' paradise by any means.
0: You know, the rooms were crowded and the work was uh, tedious and repetitious for most of the workers. You know, the highly skilled employees like the pattern makers and the uh, designers and the cutters. They had pretty good working conditions.
1: Pretty good is a relative term, of course. A sewing machine operator might earn just seven dollars a week. When Clara started, she got three. And the factories were still dangerous and workers were often injured by speeded up machines. And that's when there was work.
0: The big complaint was they never knew from day-to-day day or week-to-week week when they would be working or how much work there would be. I think anybody in the garment industry, even today, will tell you it's a it's a fickle industry simply because people's tastes change uh, so quickly.
1: A new shirtwaist design might flop. With no orders, workers might sit around all day, only to be sent home with no pay. Or another design would be such a hit that the factories couldn't fill orders quickly enough. Clara wrote at one point, quote, we are reduced to the status of machines. An average work week was 57 hours in 1909, but that was just average. A garment worker never knew if she'd work 80 hours that week or none. When workers fought for a 52 hour work week, that meant they wanted steady, guaranteed work, as well as an end to those crushing 16 hour days. And they wanted something you couldn't put a price on. Dignity. Clara eventually became a draper, someone who could look at a drawing and turn it into a shirtwaist blouse. It was a very skilled job that paid fairly well. But four men followed her and other women to the bathroom and would stand outside and shout at them if they felt they were taking too long. Women had to line up at quitting time and let guards search their purses in case they were stealing fabric or blouses. The yelling of the foreman made life unbearable, Clara later said. We are searched like thieves. Now, it's tempting to think of the owners of these factories as mustache-twirling villains who reveled in oppressing their workers. In reality, they weren't that different from Clara or any of the other young women who worked for them. They, too, were immigrants, and they, too, had usually worked in the garment industry under the same bad conditions for the same lousy pay. But they had made it, whether through perseverance, luck, stubbornness, or whatever. And once they did, they often lost sympathy for their workers, or simply didn't understand why they weren't more grateful for those shiny new workplaces. This was particularly true at the Triangle Factory. Max Blank and Isaac Harris, the owners, had come up under the sweatshop system of labor.
0: The owners of the Triangle Factory, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, have certainly been the the villains of this story and in some ways deserve to be. They, I'm sure, looked at their modern factory and compared it to the sweatshops that they had worked in as young men and felt like they were improving the conditions for workers rather than exploiting workers. I think it was the sort of kids these days, I look how soft they are, you know, compared to the way we had it. I think there was a very strong aspect of that that made them cavalier.
1: But not for long. Coming up after the break, New York garment workers walk off the job and into history. We're back and it's August 1909. New York City now has over 30,000 garment workers, mostly young Jewish women. Pay is low, hours long, conditions crowded, and demeaning. Across the U.S., the labor movement is growing. But in New York's garment industry, the unions are not friendly to women. Clara had joined the International Ladies' Garment Union in 1906 and formed a local chapter, but it got no support from the larger union operation. And this is because, even though women workers vastly outnumbered them, men in the garment industry saw women as liabilities in the fight to unionize. Women worked for less pay and often stopped working after marriage. How could they be counted on when things got serious? This did not stop Clara. She got support from another group, the Women's Trade Union League. It was a progressive organization that helped women workers and it included a lot of upper-class reformers like Jane Adams and a young Eleanor Roosevelt. Over the next three years, Clara was everywhere, urging workers to organize and go on strike for better conditions. When she discovered that the workers at Lysersen's planned a men-only walkout, she crashed the planning meeting and demanded the floor. It would never work, she said. Without the female workers, any strike was doomed to failure. The 21-year-old later admitted that she was going with her gut, not experience. What did I know about trade unionism, she said? Audacity. That was all I had. And it was an audacity increasingly shared by a large number of garment workers. They became known as fabrente Medlach, the fiery girls. Fed up, they organized factory walkouts year after year, no matter how violent things got. And this brings us to the pimps and prostitutes. Factory owners, they weren't exactly eager to sit down and negotiate with strikers. It was a lot easier to pay people to beat them up. And as the women walked the picket lines, carrying signs and wearing their best clothes, hired whores would start fights with them, punching, ripping hair, stabbing with hat pins. Their pimps, if they were bored, might wade in with their fists. Well-known agitators like Clara, they got special treatment. Louis Leizerson, her boss, paid a convicted robber and an ex-prize fighter to single out the young women for their brutal attack. If he thought it would make her back down, though, he was wrong. Claret doubled her organizing efforts, wearing her bruises like badges of honor. On November 22, 1909, just a few blocks from the Triangle Factory, Local 25 convened at Cooper Union to discuss a big general strike. Thousands of workers packed the hall. Samuel Gompers, the most powerful labor leader in America, gave a speech, whipping up the crowd. This was it. This was the moment they'd been waiting for. Garment workers, men, women, everyone would rise up and make their demands heard. Except nothing happened. There was no vote, just more speeches. And more speeches. Clara, her bruised ribs aching as the crowd squeezed around her, felt panic. The mood was shifting, the fire was dying down, and some people were beginning to leave. She could not let that happen after all that she'd suffered. She lurched to her feet and pushed through the crowd toward the stage. I want to say a few words, she cried. Clara was well known by this point for both her activism and her bravery. People getting up to leave sat down again. Other people started shouting, urging her to get up on the platform. The speakers, who also knew her, looked at one another, shrugged in resignation, and retreated. I have listened to all the speakers, she said. I have no further patience for talk. I am one of those who suffer from the abuses described here, and I move that we go on a general strike. If the crowd had cheered Gomper's speech, true pandemonium erupted now. This small, passionate woman, still healing from her attack, was brave enough to say what they were all feeling. It was time for concerted action, not one-off walkouts, not talk that went nowhere. There were shouts, cheers, whistles. Someone seconded her motion. There was another eruption. And the general strike was approved unanimously. Clara had done it.
0: She sparked a general walkout of tens of thousands of blouse makers.
1: A 16-year-old sewing machine operator named Rose Purr described the scene at her factory the next day. We all sat at the machines with our hats and coats beside us, ready to leave. And there was whispering all around the room. Should we wait? Should we leave? What should we do? Who will get up first? After two hours of this, Rose had enough. She stood up, and after a second, so did everyone else. As they filed outside, the police were already waiting for them. One even pointed his club at Rose and said, If you don't behave, you'll get this on your head. All day, that same scene played itself out at factory after factory. It would be called the Uprising of 20,000.
0: This uh, really got the attention of New York. It was the largest strike in history by women up to that time. And it particularly caught caught the attention of women suffragists. These were some of the uh, wealthiest and uh, most prominent progressive women of New York. And they looked at these uh, young immigrants, and they saw them as kindred spirits, as sisters. And they took up the cause of the strikers and uh, made it much more prominent.
1: These wealthy supporters would become known as the Mink Brigade. And they were the wives and daughters of capitalism's most ardent defenders.
0: So you suddenly had uh, women like Alva Belmont, you know, who had married into two of the biggest fortunes in New York. Uh, she was sitting in the courtroom bailing out arrested strikers. You had Anne Morgan, who was the daughter of J.P. Morgan, the richest, most powerful financier in the world. She was raising money for the strikers. New York had never seen anything like this. And for a brief time, In the winter of uh, 1909 and into 1910, this strike was the progressive, forward-looking cause celeb uh, of New York.
1: The workers wanted a 20% raise, a 52-hour work week, and better safety conditions. Some owners capitulated immediately. Others, not so much.
0: The reaction of the owners, especially at the Triangle, was to bring in strikebreakers, violent strikebreakers, who would uh, uh, attack the picket line. And then also to call on the corrupt police department of New York at that time to arrest strikers and uh, put them in jail.
1: Rich society women would sit in courtrooms, checkbooks ready, waiting to bail out the strikers. But the judges didn't always play along. When Rose Purr was arrested, a judge told her, quote, You are striking against God and nature. He found her guilty of assault when she'd been the one punched by a policeman. And he wasn't about to let her go with just a fine. Since charitable women would pay your fines, I'm going to commit you to the workhouse, he said, to give you an opportunity to think over what you've done. Rose was 16, but she looked 12. She was tiny, with a breathy voice, and still wore her hair in braids down her back. People in the gallery were shocked to see a child treated so harshly, and 15 other women would soon join her that day.
0: Uh, This turned out to be, to say the least, a highly counterproductive strategy because most of these strikers were young women, and the uh, people of New York were appalled to see young women being treated in, in this way.
1: With all the bad publicity, it seemed like everyone was behind the striking women. Until one day, suddenly, they weren't. The factory owners had struck back by giving in.
0: The owners, led by uh, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, the owners of the Triangle Factory, were uh, pretty clever about changing their tactics and making a settlement offer that included more money Everything, basically, that the strikers were asking for, except they refused to recognize the Garment Workers Union, which was heavily influenced by socialist politics and leadership.
1: It was a brilliant move, driving a wedge between the striking women and their wealthy supporters. Because women like Alva Belmont and Ann Morgan, they were not fans of socialism. They were more than happy to support the garment workers as part of their own fight for equality and suffrage, but if they were progressive, they now saw the strikers as radical, too radical. By late December, most of the society ladies had withdrawn their support. By February 1910, the last few factories reached an agreement with the workers, giving them almost everything they demanded. This was a benchmark for the labor movement and helped transform the garment industry. And now, both sides were exhausted and ready to get back to work. If they failed to fully unionize the factory, these fiery girls, like Clara and Rose, had nonetheless achieved a massive victory for all workers in the garment industry. For three months, they had stood on freezing picket lines day in, day out, and never budged. They endured assaults, arrests, and abuse, and never wavered. They fought to change their situation in life and, in a way, change the world. In our interview, David talked about his admiration for Clara, Rose, and all the others.
0: Well, I, l- I fell in love with all these young women, the fiery girls, and uh, I, I loved their spirit. I loved their optimism. I loved their, I, uh, you know, their idealistic uh, commitment. But most of all, what I really admired about these women who were so essential to this story is their. Patience. They, they organized, 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 as the saying goes. It came back year after year. They didn't allow themselves to be discouraged by setbacks. And, um, that really was crucial to their ultimate success that they were able to stick with their efforts year after year because that's how political change really is made. You know, it sort of happens. As the saying goes, uh, gradually and then all at once.
1: Now, of all the things the workers had fought for, one had fallen off their slate of demands. They got better pay, better hours, better working conditions, but not necessarily safer ones. Safety regulations were given lip service at best and then quickly forgotten. It was the busy season after all. And that was something that would come back to haunt the Triangle factory owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, one year, one month, and seventeen days later. Next up on Part 2 of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, The Inferno. Around 4.40 p.m. on a beautiful spring day, Isidore Abramowitz was getting ready to leave his job at the Triangle factory. He'd just set a stack of lawn fabric on his cutting table in preparation for the next day. A giant bin sat underneath, already full of scraps. Above the table, paper patterns hung from a wire. Cotton lint filled the air, dancing in the late afternoon sunlight. One story above, girls were leaving their sewing tables, chattering about their plans that evening. They lined up for the elevator, joking, laughing, never noticing that the stairwell door next to it was locked. As Isidore grabbed his coat, a tendril of smoke emerged from the bin behind him. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Alison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media. And our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer.